And Lord, as now we come to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding today. That you would not only give us understanding, but that by the power of your spirit, you would convict us and show us our desperate need for grace, our desperate need for Christ. Use this time to glorify him and to strengthen and encourage, edify and instruct your people for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 6. We will continue our study in John chapter 6 today, looking at verses 16 to 21. In the summer of 2018, Christina and I had a chance to go on vacation in Hawaii. Uh, If you remember back then, there had been a massive volcanic eruption on the big island there in Hawaii, and the lava actually flowed for, for several months without stopping. Which, uh, which resulted in a lot of people canceling their summer vacation plans to Hawaii. Um, but when somewhere around 95% of the tourists who planned on going to Hawaii that year canceled their plans, uh, as you can imagine, prices plummeted. Uh, prices for uh, places to stay, prices for cars, prices for airfare, it all plummeted. And so Christina and I couldn't pass up the opportunity to go there on vacation at just a fraction of the cost that it would normally be. Uh, But while we were there, we had hoped to visit with a couple local congregations there on the big island. Uh, You know, we pastors, uh, we we love going to visit other people's churches uh, and going to their services because it gives us a chance to kind of see things from a fresh perspective. It gives us a chance to see things about our own church that we might have become kind of blind to or just so used to that we don't notice it anymore. So after looking through, I mean, literally, a couple dozen church websites there in Hawaii, we settled on on one small church that actually had a really great doctrinal statement on their website. Now, you may remember this, because I'm pretty sure that I posted about it on social media, but by the time the sermon of that service was halfway through, Christina and I were feeling like we just couldn't get out of there quickly enough, uh, because the man who was preaching that week was teaching about Jesus walking on the water, and how, uh, and, and the central point of his message was that if you, if you follow Jesus, uh, all of your problems in life will go away. And that is just simply, flat out, unequivocally wrong. That's often exactly what people think will happen if they become a Christian. Maybe their marriage is falling apart and they think that, okay, if, if, I, if I give God what he wants, maybe he'll give me what I want. Maybe God will miraculously fix my marriage. Uh, maybe their finances aren't do- uh, doing so well or their physical health is failing. And, and their hope is that if they, if they give God what he wants, they'll give him what they want. So if they follow Jesus, uh, God will alleviate all of their problems. 
So what this preacher said in that service really isn't all that uncommon. I mean, there are scores and scores of people who think that way about following Jesus. In fact, there are evangelistic methodologies that are centered on that kind of thinking. And yet, Christina and I found it deeply troubling to hear that being preached in a church with such a good doctrinal statement on their website because Scripture does not teach that following Jesus will guarantee that your problems will all go away. Instead, to the contrary, what most people experience upon becoming Christians is that their problems actually increase rather than decreasing. A reminder that this is not just a spiritual journey but that there is a spiritual war going on. And in fact, this is what Scripture says is normative. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. It's universal. That, that will look different uh, you know, in, in different contexts. Uh, in the United States, it might mean that you miss out on maybe a job promotion. Uh, it might mean that you don't make as many friends as you would if you weren't a Christian. Uh, it might mean that you get your social media account suspended for saying something radical like salvation is only in Jesus, something like that. Uh, but in Nigeria, where over 1,000 Christians have been martyred this year alone, simply for refusing to renounce their faith in Christ, it might cost you more than just your job or a few friends. It might cost you your life. Now, over the course of the past couple weeks, we've taken a look at the miracle most commonly referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. You'll remember that it didn't end well, at least not from, from our perspective, perhaps. Maybe we should say that it didn't end as we might have expected it to end. Because the truth is that while Jesus did preach to the masses... Uh, and, and did feed the masses, the real lesson on that passage wasn't directed to the masses. The real message, the real lesson in that miracle was for the disciples. He used the opportunity to teach them about trusting in him and obeying him, even when they maybe didn't understand, even when they themselves felt like they had nothing to give. As for the masses... Uh, they got the fact that it was very similar to the Exodus, that there were a lot of parallels to the Exodus because they realized that this was, uh, this was the prophet, not a prophet, but the prophet, a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 13. But they thought that Jesus had come. They thought this prophet had come to provide for their physical needs. And so they, with all one mind, sought to take Jesus by force to kidnap him and make him their earthly king. And Jesus responded to that by withdrawing to the mountain by himself. He withdrew from the false followers. So in the passage that we'll be looking at today, Jesus sends the disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee to teach them yet another important lesson. Back to back. Miracles, back-to-back important lessons. In Matthew's account, he tells us, uh, in Matthew 14, 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. So to, to help us further understand the context, to help us understand 
all the timing of this, Matthew adds in verse 23, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So what John gives us over the course of the next few verses is kind of an abbreviated account of Jesus walking out on the water to meet the disciples. Uh, Given that this book, given that John's narrative, his testimony, was written actually a few decades after the testimonies of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, it's possible that he just assumed that uh, people knew the stories that were told, uh, you know, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's perspectives, and so he was just going to to fill in a few details. Uh, But it also seems likely that John is, uh, he, he sees an opportunity here to develop some themes that he's been developing through his text. So as John presents the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, immediately following the feeding of the 5,000 or the 5,000 families, uh, and Jesus' subsequent withdrawal from the masses, the point of this passage in which Jesus walks on the water is that Jesus is not interested in having followers who only follow him for the sake of their own personal interests, but rather he wants his followers to trust him and follow him simply for who he is. Jesus is not interested in having false followers. He doesn't build up false followers. He builds up true followers, those who follow him, not because there's something that they can personally gain by following him, but those who follow him simply because he is worthy of being followed So our passage starts out immediately after um, John has told us about Jesus withdrawing to the mountain. Uh, Let's look at verses 16 to 18 together. John writes, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea into Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. So this is uh, what takes place in the evening time. Uh, In the evening, Jesus sends them out on the boat onto the Sea of Galilee. John tells us uh, that by the time it became dark, Jesus was still not with them. Uh, they, they might have been uh, rowing in the direction that they needed to go, keeping an eye on the shoreline, hoping that at some point Jesus would, would kind of catch up with them, uh, expecting him to come to them. But finally, once it's dark, they seem to have given up any hope of him joining them. Uh, maybe they figure that Jesus was just going to walk around the lake, which of course is actually what the masses uh, ended up doing. We see in verse 22 that the only boat in the harbor on the other side the next day is the boat that the disciples came over in. So there were no boats that the, that the masses came over in. So how did the masses get to the other side? They walked. And the disciples may have figured that that's what Jesus decided to do as well. Now, the Sea of Galilee, if you know uh, the geography of it, the geography makes this very interesting. Uh, It's located, the the Sea of Galilee is located about 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills, um, cliffs. Some of these hills are very, very steep, uh, very, very tall. 
And sometimes that makes for great sailing weather because uh, depending on the direction that the wind is blowing, sometimes it can be a very, very calm lake, uh, a very, very calm surface of the water. But other times, particularly when cold air comes in over Mount Hermon's Peak, which is 9,200 feet above sea level, that's almost a 10,000 foot difference, the storms that can hit the Sea of Galilee can be extremely, extremely violent, possibly even deadly. I'll never forget the morning um, when Christina and I, we were newlyweds living in the North Denver region, and winter was coming in over the Rocky Mountains. Uh, That's not a 10,000-foot difference, but it is a significant difference. But the the winter was coming in over the Rocky Mountains like a a runaway train. Uh, That's exactly, by the way, what it sounded like. Uh, We had wind gusts that morning that were surpassing 100 miles per hour. Uh, Some of the homes in the neighborhood had windows blown out. Some of the homes in the neighborhood had shingles blown off their roofs. It it was scary. Uh, That that wind was was crazy. It just gathers up speed as it comes down those slopes, and it can hit you pretty hard. All we could do was uh, cover ourselves in blankets in case a window came crashing in. So I can only imagine... Given how scared I was then, uh, which is why I remember it, I'm sure, but I can only imagine how much more terrifying that kind of thing is when you're not in a house, but when you're in an ancient, very small fishing boat. Uh, But John is not simply giving us a picture of some dangerous conditions for sailing and traveling by boat on the Sea of Galilee in. No, he's also giving us a very specific picture of something that applies to us very well. It's a picture of God's people. It's a picture of the church and the trials that we must endure as part of the journey. The Sea of Galilee, in a sense, it it represents the, the world, the dangers of living in the world. Now, John gives us two very significant details that can easily be used to describe our experiences as we walk with the Lord in the world, particularly when God sends us through trials. Uh, A.W. Pink says this of this scene. He says, quote, It describes the conditions through which we must pass as we journey to our home above, end quote. So, two details that, that really... Uh, correspond with living in the world. The first is that it was dark. It was dark, John tells us. And that's interesting that he tells us that it was dark because he could have just as easily have said uh, it was night. And, And we'd get the picture if he just said it was night, right? But when he says it was dark, it's with the understanding that darkness in John's text has a few different Meanings that it's actually it can be literal and symbolic at the same time. In fact, you'll remember that one of the themes in John's book is contrasting light and darkness. Throughout John's narrative, throughout this book, darkness is always the absence of light. Now you might say, "Well, that sounds obvious," but let's remember something: Who is the light? John starts off the book by telling us who the light is. John 1, 9, Jesus is the true light. Well, Jesus isn't with them now, and it's dark. Now, the idea of darkness alone can be kind of frightening because we don't know what lies ahead. 
I, I mean, I, I would assume that that's why horror movies usually take place in the darkness of night, because there's a, a psychologically intimidating aspect of not being able to see danger coming at us. And so it is with the Christian life, friends. We don't see what's ahead. We don't know what might come at us. The second element uh, that John tells us about is that the sea began to be stirred up. That's what he says in verse 18. The sea began to be stirred up. See, a small fishing boat in those days was no match for a fierce storm. Uh, Depending on the severity of the storm, It can be catastrophic, it can be deadly, especially when the uh, storm sweeps in very quickly and people aren't prepared. The the crew of the boat haven't had time to get to shore to prepare themselves, to brace themselves, uh, to get to safety. And the Christian walk is similar. Difficulties and trials and hardships can come up with little or no warning. And they can flip every aspect of our lives upside down before we even realize what has hit us. But let's not miss something very significant here, friends, and that's this. They are in this situation. The disciples are in this situation for one reason and one reason only. They've obeyed the Lord. He sent them out They obeyed, and that's why they are in the predicament that they are in. And thus, we see even further how definitely this scenario speaks to us even today. We, not be, we may not be out on literal water in a, in a literal storm, but we are in the world. We're not of the world, but we are in the world. It's impossible for us to avoid being in the world, and it's impossible to avoid some of the dangers and pitfalls that will come our way. Because the world is at war with God. In a very real sense, friends, if you are a Christian, you are living behind enemy lines. You are in enemy territory, a place where people reject God. And not only do they reject God, but they hate God. They hate Christ. And they will invariably reject and hate us as well. James says, James 4.4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Peter says that uh, the, the troubles that we face give us reason to cling to the word of God. He says this, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. In other words, the Bible is this shining light in a dark place. What dark place? The world. The world. That's what uh, Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.19. So the world is a dark place. And it can be a scary place. Because the light of the world is not here. At least not in the fullest sense. And so we see that the situation into which the disciples have been sent is a picture of God's people being sent out into and living in the world. The danger, friends, is that we all crave peace and we all crave comfort. And the flesh nature loves to feel like it's in control of absolutely every aspect of our lives. And sometimes, therefore, sometimes the best thing that can happen to us is for us to realize that we are not in control. And in fact, we never were. And if we were in control, 
things would be really bad. So we need to be reminded that we're not in control, but that God is. That God is the one who's in control, even if that means, even if being reminded of that, even if learning that lesson means being assailed by the forces of darkness in the world, which are hostile to God and hostile to his people. See, it's, it's easy for us to find ourselves caught in a proverbial storm in the darkness and to think to ourselves, now wait a minute, I thought God loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. And here's the thing, he, he does, indeed he does, and that's exactly why you would be in a storm. That's exactly why God allows us to go through hardships and trials. Because those hardships and those trials, that's the, that's the soil where our love for God blossoms and grows, and it's the place where our love and inclinations towards sin get burned away, get diminished. It's a place where we learn to quit trusting so much in ourselves and what we see, and to trust instead in what is unseen, and to lean on God's faithfulness to his promises, his purposes, and his people. It's a wonderful plan, all right. But nobody said it would be easy. Nobody said it would be easy. And that was the experience of the disciples here. In verse 17, we see that it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The truth is that God has a reason for sometimes withholding the light of his divine countenance from us. We may not always know what that reason is. We may search our hearts. We may search our minds. We may try to reason ourselves into understanding and come up with nothing, with no understanding at all. I mean, isn't that exactly what happened to Job? Think about what happened to Job. He's going through these, these trials, these severe trials. Job 30, 26 records his thoughts in the midst of these trials. He says, When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. And that, friends, that is when we really learn to believe. That is when we really learn to cling to God's promises. And we remember that this is his world. This is his world. He is sovereign over it, both in the daytime and in the darkness of night. Being a Christian does not mean that your troubles will all go away. In, any, in, a, in a very real sense, what it means is that your troubles have only just begun. But here's your comfort, friends. Here's your assurance, the promise that will let you find peace in the midst of those trials. And that is that God is sovereign over those trials, whatever they may be. God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. So it's not that he doesn't realize that you're going through it. And it's not that it's so great a trial that he can't do anything about it. No, he's sovereign over even our fiercest trials. And he will use those trials. Here's the pillow to rest your head on. He will use those trials for your good. That's his promise. He will use every circumstance of your life for your ultimate good, including, and perhaps especially, trials 
And of course, that good is not your comfort. That's not the greatest good. No, the greatest good is that you would grow in Christ's likeness for his glory. And so trials have a unique way of of just teaching us this and molding us and shaping us and deflating us of spiritual pride. Being a Christian does not mean that your troubles will just evaporate. Just poof, they're gone. It means that we won't face those trials and those hardships alone. Christ is with us. He promised that he would be with us even to the end of the age. So the question is, do you believe that? Hold on. It's really easy to say, yes, I believe that when things are smooth sailing. But what about when a storm hits? Nothing teaches us like a storm or a trial. It's one thing to know it theoretically when things are smooth sailing. It's quite another thing to know it experientially when the storms of your life are raging. Think about it this way. What bonds a personal friendship, like one person being there for the other in the midst of a trial? For some of you who were there for me when Christina was in the hospital a couple years ago, I mean, listen, I I loved you and I trusted you even before Christina was in the hospital and I thought I was going to lose her. But after that, for those of you who who stood with me and prayed for me and and loved me, uh, how much more, after that trial, how much more do you think I loved you? I mean, you don't even know. I, I mean, I was loyal to you before, but the loyalty that I had for you afterwards was exponentially greater. And so it is with our walk with the Lord. It's so easy to trust in Him on warm, sunny smooth sailing days because you don't feel like you need them all that much. You can sort of just keep them in your back pocket, so to speak. But in the darkness of night, when the storm is raging, and all you can do is hold on and pray, that has a way of drawing us to God in an entirely different way, a much stronger way. And this, in this way, our trials bond us more closely, draw our affections even more strongly to Christ. And so it was that the disciples were sent out by Christ onto the Sea of Galilee into this storm where it was dark and this storm just sweeps over them before they can do anything to avoid it. Do you wonder what they might have been thinking at that point, by the way? I mean, they had just watched Jesus feed Uh, miraculously feed 5,000 families. Do you wonder, do you you think any of them might have been saying, you know, if only Jesus was here, this wouldn't be happening? Based on what Mark tells us, I'd say probably not. He tells us that as they are out there facing the storm, they were hardened, and they didn't learn anything from the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000. That's what Mark tells us. But what we do know for sure is that they are in this predicament, A, because they were sent into it, and B, because they obeyed the Lord, and they went. And we know that while Jesus withdrew from his false followers earlier in the day, he does not withdraw from his true followers, friends, ever. And so, he comes to the disciples even out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Look at verses 19 to 21 with me. John continues writing, 
Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So what did the disciples do when they were faced with this trial? They're out there. It starts off smooth sailing. Suddenly a storm comes in. What did they do? The only thing they could do. They kept rowing. They kept rowing and rowing. Obviously the wind is against them. They're rowing against the wind, and so they don't get very far. Um, They probably didn't get as far as they would have if they had just walked. Uh, After all, it it was evening when they had been sent out, and Matthew tells us that it was in the fourth watch of the night when he came to them walking on the sea, Matthew 14, 25. That calculates out to somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So, evening time, can we say 7 o'clock-ish? Somewhere around there? And now it's as late as 6 a.m.? That's 10 or so hours of strenuous rowing against the wind. So they're scared, they're exhausted, but all they can do is keep rowing against the tide, against the wind, against the current, against all these things. And likewise, friends, if you're a faithful Christian living in the world, that's how your life is going to be. You are going against the current of the culture. You are going with your face into the wind. The tide will be trying to pull you back. And this isn't anything new, by the way. It's not just that, oh, look at America, how we're turning so far away from God. This is historically unprecedented. No, it's not. It's not something new. It's certainly not something that is, uh, that, that is unique um, throughout the history of the church, although in our cultural context it might be unique. But in Spurgeon's days, in the mid-1800s, he faced what came to be known as the downgrade controversy. Uh, the, the Baptist Union in England was severely compromising on their doctrine And with only about five years of his life left to live, Spurgeon entered into the public exchange of ideas uh, with with his proverbial sword drawn, and he wrote a piece called Another Word on the Downgrade. And he wrote this. He said, quote, The case is mournful. Certain ministers are making infidels. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as those preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. And he goes on to say, Germany was made unbelieving by her preachers, and England is following in her tracks. End quote. One author notes, he says, quote, Spurgeon's another word on the downgrade landed like a bombshell. It sent shockwaves throughout the Baptist Union and Baptist evangelicalism. End quote. Spurgeon rode fiercely against the cultural current, and frankly, it took quite a lot out of him. Maybe he would have had more than just five years left to live if he hadn't gone through this this controversy and rode against it. Uh, Physically, it cost him. It, It may have cost him years of his life, but history proved him to be right. And yet, even that wasn't the first time something like that had happened. The Puritans were up against the very same thing. And before the Puritans... The reformers were up against the very same thing. So this is not historically unprecedented. Christians throughout history 
have had to go against the tide, against the current, into the wind. And so it is in our day and age that we have a repetition of what keeps happening throughout history. We row into against the cultural currents and tides and winds. What is the answer? What are we supposed to do? The answer is not to change course. The answer is not to become, you know, just a little bit more like the world so that maybe the world will ease up a little bit on us and be a little bit less antagonistic toward us. No, friends, the answer is to keep rowing, even against the wind, even against the current. Keep the course that the Lord has set. He has set it. And only He has the authority to change it. Keep the course, even if it means constant discouragement, constant antagonism, aching muscles. Because, friends, you and I are but servants who are certainly not greater than our Master. He's the one who has set the course. Let us be faithful to keep the course and keep rowing. See, one of the main lessons of the Christian life is that God's purposes are not centered on me and my comfort or my glory. No, it is all about Jesus. It is not all about me. See, part of of your journey, Christian, part of your journey, a central part of your sanctification is learning something called, a virtue called perseverance. Costly perseverance. And you need to understand that because our flesh is so inclined to love comfort. And because the time may come when discomfort tempts you, whispers in your ear to make you believe, trying to make you believe that God has abandoned you, that God has forsaken you, that God is not hearing your prayers, that all of your prayers are falling on deaf ears. I have to imagine that's pretty close to what the disciples were feeling at this point. But in the midst of their seemingly futile efforts, they look out on the Sea of Galilee and they see that Jesus is drawing near to them. And he's going faster than they are. Mark tells us that he was about to pass them by. The text finally tells us, by the way, that they were frightened. Isn't that funny? It's at this point that it tells us that they were frightened. They were facing the danger of the storm in the darkness. And John tells us that they were afraid uh, now. He didn't tell us before while that stuff was going on. Although they certainly were afraid, I, I would have to think. No, he tells us that they're afraid when Jesus finally shows up. Matthew gives us one clue to, to why they might have been afraid. They think it's a ghost. In the midst of trials, there's a lesson there for us too. In the midst of trials, you know what can very easily overtake our thinking? Worldly superstitions. And that's exactly what happened with them. They thought it was a ghost. Worldly superstitions had had taken over their minds, had had taken over their thoughts. Uh, Mark gives us an even deeper insight into what had happened to cause the disciples to despair when they saw him, telling us that uh, they hadn't learned anything from the feeding of the 5,000 earlier in the day, but that their hearts were hardened. Their fears had mastered them. Their fears were controlling what they thought. How quickly they forgot 
that Jesus is capable of meeting every need. That was the lesson from the 5,000. A couple hours later, it's gone. It's not even on the radar for them. How quickly they forgot that Jesus can not only provide for our deepest needs, but that he is capable of doing what is necessary for his people and that he is filled with compassion for his people. How quickly the flesh forgets. Nevertheless, Jesus comes to them. He walks out on the water and he comes to them. And and yet we know the truth is that he had never actually left them on their own. It, It sure looked like he had left them on their own, but he didn't. Where had he been? What took him so long? Why didn't he come to them sooner? We actually aren't left to guess on this. We know where he was and what he'd been doing. He'd been up on the mountaintop praying. Specifically, he had been praying for them. Mark tells us in his account of this miraculous event, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. That's Mark chapter 6, verses 46 to 48. Even from the mountaintop, he saw them. He saw them straining at the oars. He, he knew where they were. He hadn't left them on their own. He was watching them. Did you catch that? He was watching them. And you might ask, how could he possibly see so far even in the darkness? Because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. Even through the darkness, despite the distance, he did not leave them on their own. He was watching over them. He knew the thoughts they had. He knew the fears that were overwhelming their hearts, just as he had known the selfish ambition that filled the hearts of the false followers earlier in the day. He had not forgotten his disciples. No, he had been interceding for them. And in his perfect timing, he came to them. And he says to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Those three words, it is I, are the Greek words ego eimi, which translated literally mean I am. Do you remember the significance of those words? He's claiming to be God. He's reminding them that he is God in the flesh. He's reminding them of this cornerstone truth of their confidence They didn't need to be afraid. Because high above the raging waves and winds, God in human flesh had stood in a place of authority and fellowship with the Father, watching over them, interceding for them. And Christian, this is yet another comfort for you when you face storms and trials in life. You might feel alone. It might look on the surface like you are just completely alone. But if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have believed in Him, friends, you are never, ever, ever alone. Even in your darkest hour, friends, the Lord Jesus is pleading for you at the right hand of God the Father. He sees you. 
He knows what you're going through. He loves you. And He's lifting up nail-pierced hands that suffered and bled for you as He prays on your behalf in your darkest hour. Even when it looks like you're alone. Even when it looks like all is lost. This is the unshakable promise. The guarantee of your ultimate safety. We're reminded here once again, aren't we, that God's never in a hurry. God is never in a hurry. Why, why would God hurry? I mean, he, he's, he's all-knowing, right? Uh, even in the darkness, he, he sees things so much more clearly than we ever possibly could, even in the daylight. He's all-wise, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. And thus, he arrives when he knows the time is right. And there's nothing, there is nothing that can stand in his way from coming to you. Not the raging sea, not the howling wind, not the vilest of sin. He may not show up until the fourth watch, though. You might have to strain at the oars until you are just at the end of yourself. He may not show up until the fourth watch when you are just exhausted and you realize that you have made little or or no progress on your own maybe you've even gone backwards but he has promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you now john doesn't tell us that jesus causes the storm to cease to be still but mark does and so too we have to remember that whatever we face whatever trials whatever hardships we might face, whatever storms are sent into our lives that we must persevere through, Jesus is sovereign over every single one of them. He still has the power. He still has the authority to still the raging storms that we face. And so, if the storm persists, is it God's will? Yes. Yes, it is. If the storm persists, it's because he's allowing it to persist. It's not that the storm is greater than he is. It's not that he doesn't know about it. It's that there's a deeper purpose than our comfort in that time. Because, friends, our greatest need is not to be removed from earthly troubles. Sometimes our greatest need is to be faced with earthly troubles. No, our greatest need is to learn to trust Jesus more fully. And to trust that there is no circumstance in our lives that he does not have sovereign authority over. Is there a greater hope than that? It was Charles Spurgeon who said, I've learned to kiss the waves that slam me into the rock of ages. Oh, I love that quote. What he meant was that he had learned to appreciate and and to love the way that God uses difficult circumstances and trials and hardships to teach us to trust in and stand on Christ. And Charles Spurgeon knew a lot about hardships and trials. He had quite a few of his own. But the point is, you can be thankful for your trials and storms and hardships in life because they are never, ever, ever meaningless. Instead, they have a great purpose in your life. God is using them to grow us in Christ's likeness, to grow us in faithfulness, to grow us in perseverance. 
to grow us in grace. So John concludes by telling us that they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now some may not be entirely comfortable with the idea that Christ waits to be received in faith, but even A.W. Pink notes of this verse that, quote, Christ does not force himself upon us. He waits to be received. It is the welcome of our hearts that he desires, end quote. And, and friends, that is one of the many reasons that he may allow us to labor in our trials and hardships for a time before he makes his presence really felt. It is that we may more eagerly receive him when he does show up. See, God's grace doesn't treat us like robots. Rather, he created us as very emotional creatures who have affections, and his grace works in us and through our circumstances to change our affections, sometimes gradually, sometimes suddenly, but always in his perfect timing and always for the strength or for the purpose of growing our strength, uh, the strength of our faith, strengthening our trust in Christ. Friends, if you have never received Christ in faith, you must do so. How do you receive him? You believe in Christ. You, you trust in him alone. That's, that's what it means to receive him. And if, you, if we weren't all in danger of, of losing our souls to hell forever, I, I wouldn't be urging anyone to come to him in faith, believing in him as only he is worthy of. Come to him in faith, receive him, and Jesus will save you. That doesn't mean you won't have trials. It means he will be with you in the trials and that your trials will have a great purpose. If today you've heard his voice, come while you can and believe in him because you may never hear it again. You might say, well, I have no use of him right now. My life is just smooth sailing and, you know, it's great. My life is, is going fine right now. I don't need Jesus. But listen, you are better off in a storm with Jesus interceding on your behalf than you are having a, just sailing on, on, on still water on sunny days without Jesus. The day is coming when you will wish that you had traded those sunny, still days without Jesus for storms with him. The reality is, friends, for the unbeliever, the storm is on the horizon, and the time to prepare is now. And the way you prepare is you believe in Jesus. Jesus is not interested in having followers who only follow him for the sake of their own personal interests. Ultimately, that's the type of thinking that lies behind this idea that if you just believe in Jesus, all of your troubles will go away. That's how wrong that type of thinking is. Rather, Jesus wants his followers to trust him and to follow him because he alone is worthy of being followed. That's the lesson here. The moment we trust in Christ is the moment we are more safe and more secure than we had ever been before in our entire lives, no matter what it might have looked like on the surface. And he'll soon assure us of this. This is the will of him who sent me, talk, talking about the Father, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, 
but raise it up on the last day. Friends, we can be sure of this. We can be sure that those who follow him simply for who he is because he is worthy are certain, certain to land safely on heaven's shore in his perfect timing. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the assurance that we can glean from a passage like this. Assurance that you will never leave us or forsake us. Assurance that you are in control of all things. You are sovereign over every hardship, every difficulty, every trial. And that no trial that we go through is meaningless. Rather, you are with us and you're using our trials and our hardships to grow us in Christ's likeness, to teach us to trust more fully in him, to wean us from independence. Oh Lord, please wean us of independence. Break us free from any idea that we're capable of doing things on our own and that we don't need you. Father, teach us Show us, by the power of your Spirit working in us, how desperately we need Christ, not only in storms, but even when life is smooth sailing. Teach us not to put any confidence in the flesh, but to put all hope, all confidence in Christ. For his glory, in his name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper